Welcome to the Conversation Through Revelation podcast, a conversation designed to help you go further and deeper into the book of Revelation. I'm Tom Walker, your host, and I'm joined by Pastor Brian Broderson and Pastor John Wang. In today's episode, we walk through chapter three and finish off the letters to the seven churches and discover the implications of being lukewarm. All right, so Pastor John's going to read the third chapter of uh, Revelation to us, and we're going to jump in. All right, so Revelation chapter 3. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels." Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus is the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Thank you, John. Um, So we had um, a little map put together. I don't know if that can be put up on the screen right now. We wanted you to just be able to get a visual of the location of the seven churches. Is that up? Okay. I can't see it, but I'm going to trust these guys to tell me when it's up. Uh, But anyway, we'll, we'll keep it up for a while. We just wanted to, you know, have that up there. And again, just to remind you, that these were seven historical churches in uh, the province of Asia Minor. Um, The one that we're most familiar with out of all of these, of course, is Ephesus, because that was the the place where so much happened and where the Apostle Paul had originally planted the church. And, you know, it's, it's highly likely that all of those churches ultimately sprung out of Ephesus, right? Yeah. And Colossae was there too. We're studying Colossians on Sunday. It's not mentioned among the seven, but it was there in the region as well. So remember that these seven churches, they are uh, historical churches, and these letters meant something very specific to them at the time. But they're also uh, a picture of what the church would look like throughout its history. And so you have sort of seven different Uh, possibilities of what the church might look like throughout its history. And then as we talked before, there are some who who try to fit into it a, um, you know, the different ages of the history of the church. John and I both agree that that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, It works well if you consider Western church history only, but um, I don't think Jesus would have thought that the church only existed in the West. <laughs> so I don't think it totally fits. But but in that, um, John, you know, in that scenario where it is like a, a picture of kind of the progression through history, you've got Ephesus as the apostolic church. You've got Smyrna as the, the season of suffering under the Roman Empire. And then you've got Pergamos, uh, which would be the, roughly the time of Constantine and after where there was you know, favor given to the church, but compromise took place. Uh, I think it was in, um, I think it was 380 that the the Council of Thessalonica actually, uh, it was there that, you, that the church was declared the state church. So that, you know, really the merging. Then Thyatira, some people see that as the medieval period. Um, and many people see it specifically as the Roman Catholic church. And then uh, when we come to Sardis, uh, people see this as, as, okay, so this is the Reformation period. Uh, and then out of the Reformation, they see, you know, two streams. Philadelphia is the stream of, uh, you know, the, the righteous holding to the faith, the orthodox followers of Jesus. Laodicea is that compromised version. So even though I, I don't think it's an airtight argument, there are some things that you can see that seem to say, okay, well, yeah, there's some, there's some parallels here, right? Yeah, I think, I think what's interesting about all of that is like what you mentioned, Brian, these seven churches were not the only churches that were there in Asia Minor. 
And um, it's interesting because there are churches that we would consider be more significant than these seven. Um, like you said, Colossae wasn't mentioned. Hierapolis wasn't mentioned. And so the fact that the number seven is significant in the book of Revelation, and as you've already pointed out, that's a number that represents completion. And the fact that these churches, even though it's kind of a not a perfect circle, it, there is a circular formation to this, which could imply like this is, like you said, these seven churches should represent the churches of all the ages. There are things that Jesus wants to speak into every congregation. And um, I think that's significant, especially these three. As I was reading these three letters today, I'm like, oh my gosh, man, these are letters that we need today. Yeah, Yeah, and I agree. I think these these three very, very specifically hit, hit home. So we also, this week, we talked about you know, just, you know, we're trying to just kind of work out our format here. And so um, what we decided this week is we are going to, even though I've been sort of hogging the mic here uh, initially, but we're going to pitch over to Tom and Tom's going to be more of our, um, he's going to be sort of our, our person who guides us through the conversation with, with questions. He's got questions that are coming in. Um, you know, people are texting questions in. He's got the questions that uh, Cheryl has written up. And and then, of course, he just got his own questions. So I'm going to just pitch it to you, Tom, and then we'll go ahead and get the conversation going. And uh, I don't know what's happening with that uh, graphic. I mean, maybe you guys are seeing it. I, I don't know if you guys are seeing it. We're not seeing it here. They're all seeing it on the outside. Oh, good. <laughs> That's great. Okay. I heard it looks really good. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, John, you saw it, so you alluded it to it. It looks fantastic. Right? It looks fantastic. Okay. Okay, Tom, take it away. So um, as we jump into Sardis, it's really important to kind of get a grasp of what um, this city looked like. And um, so to begin with, this um, the church of Sardis was in this great, deep spiritual coma, Um but the, the key thing to, to think about here is that it's not um, out of Christ's um, summons. So, like, they're not too far gone into this deep spiritual coma that they can't come back from it. Um, and so there's, the, there's this idea that Sardis connected all of these major cities and um, also the inland cities of um, Asia Minor. And so, yeah, the idea of this church is just it has this dead orthodoxy. And so do you guys want to jump in and kind of tell us a little bit more about why... Um, it's important that this letter went to Sardis. Well, I'll tell you one thing for me that really was insightful um, revisiting Sardis again was out of all the seven letters, um, I I don't know of one church that so reflected the condition of the city that was in, like the church in Sardis. And, and just some real quick things about this um, the city, which is so fascinating to me, is number one, you know, when we talk about the city of Sardis, we are talking about a capital city. It was the capital of Lydia. And the people of Sardis, um, Herodotus, who was a well-known Greek historian at the time, he described the Sardinians as being people that had a reputation for lazy standards of morality. So they were already an apathetic people. And the other thing that was interesting about Sardis is that there were three major landmarks of the city. The first is the Temple of Sibylle was there, and Sibylle was considered the mother goddess of Rome. And secondly, Sardis was known for a, a, this citadel and Acropolis. But here's the third thing that to me is so fascinating. 
Sardis is well known for its necropolis. Sardis was known as the cemetery of a thousand hills. So it was known for being a place for dead people. And the other thing that I think is so interesting, because it's going to tie into this letter, is that Sardis and its history, it was built on this rock hilltop, and um, the city was built as a fortress that was considered as being impregnable. And yet two times the city fell. It fell to Cyrus the Great of the Persians, and it fell to Alexander the Great of the Grecians, because the guards were not watchful, they fell asleep. And when Cyrus the Great came in, the people said he came like a thief in the night. Isn't that interesting? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is addressing this church, and they are just reflecting the condition of the city of Sardis. Yeah, and, and that's, we talked a little bit about that previously. That's one of the fascinating features of these churches is that, you know, the, the, like you're saying, John, the history of the city itself, um, there's some correspondence to what's happened historically with the city with what Jesus is speaking to the church about. And so, um, yeah, the, the fact here that, um, you know, he says to them, he says, uh, be watchful, <laughs> be watchful. That, that was what they had failed to do in the past, right? Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And then remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. And so, um, yeah, I, I just think that the, those historical parallels are, they're, they're helpful to know those things because it sheds light on the, some of the issues that Jesus was addressing. And you know, to me, the thing about this letter I think is so timely is that um, historically when Jesus wrote this letter and sent it to the people of Sardis, Sardis was pretty much a rundown town. And yet it had the reputation of a glorious past. And that's that was their selling point. They, rather than being this this significant city at the time that this letter was written, whenever people would talk about Sardis, they would only talk about the glory days. Mm -hmm. They would only talk about the past and how fascinating that Jesus is addressing this church. And he says, look, look at you guys have a great reputation, but you guys are dead. Mm -hmm. and, and it just struck me how many churches are repeating that same story that if you were to ask them, hey, tell us about your relationship with Jesus today. Oh, no, let me tell you about our glory days. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, um, it's funny because um, essentially what this means is it's like this dead corpse that's been dressed in this beautiful um, like garment. You know, you wrap like you put a great coffin and you put this dead body in it and everyone's like, oh, that's a cool coffin. But um, so the idea here is like... Um, Reputation is how you're perceived by people, but what's important to God is the character of how you're living in that moment. And um, yeah, the, the guys in Sardis definitely, um, you just can't do it. You can't live like looking backwards when there's a God that wants you to move like forwards in time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's, um, that's an important thing, but um, what's the distinction here? And why is it important that Jesus came with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? What does that mean by the seven spirits? Well, you know, we've seen that a couple a couple of times, right? And it goes back to the original 
vision of Jesus there standing, holding the seven stars in his right hand, standing in the midst of the golden lampstands. So once again, it is his uh, declaration to them that he is the Lord of the church, basically. You know, he's, it's his presence, it's his power. And, and that was the thing that was being jeopardized, you know, like in a previous church where he warned that he, to, to Ephesus, remember, he warned that he would, unless he repented, he would remove the lampstand out of its place. And so that's something that I think, you know, there's always a need regardless of where we're at in our journey spiritually, there's always a need to make sure we are maintaining God's presence in our lives, yeah. isn't there? You know, it, because it's easy to just get, even as we talked before, it's easy to get caught up in religious activity, duty, uh, you know, works. I mean, Jesus talks to all these churches about their works. Interestingly, Sardis there's no commendation. He, there's nothing good. He doesn't, you know, everyone else, even, even Thyatira and, and Pergamos, which were pretty bad, he still has something to commend them for. But these guys, he just, no, no, you guys are just, you got a name that you're alive, but you're dead. So yeah, so that's, uh, you know, maintaining that, that sense. But just again, recognizing that, uh, you know, the life of Jesus uh, is the life of the church. And if you're disconnected from him, I was doing an interview today and, you know, the person interviewing me was asking me, how are you, how are you making the decisions that you're making in regard, it was about how we're navigating the coronavirus. And I said, well, listen, we believe that the, the Lord is the head of the church mm-hmm. and we believe that he directs us. So we, first and foremost, we're looking for him to give us guidance. That's what we're doing. We're not getting out a handbook and saying, hey, what, you know, look at page 39. What does it say there? <laughs> oh, I guess this is what we do. No, we're saying, Lord, show us what to do. And that's where, you know, this church obviously moved away from that kind of dependence on the Lord. But let me just say this, um, John, you know, this book, this book, I mean, this letter here, uh, Jesus says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, uh, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. But then verse five is a verse that's caused all kinds of conversation and debate over the ages um, because of this. Jesus says, he overcomes shall be clothed with a, in white garments and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father uh, and before his angels. So um, this, this verse is always brought up in relation to the question of whether or not a Christian uh, can lose their salvation. And the irony, if you think about it, though, that, I mean, because people point to this and say, look, you can lose your salvation because Jesus says right here, I will not blot your name out. It's like, well, don't you see the irony in that? It's a verse where Jesus is assuring that that's not going to happen, but somehow it's twisted. Yeah. And, and what's, you know, what it's twisted because people say, well, Jesus wouldn't refer to something happening if it wasn't a possibility that it, would, that it could happen. So, so he's obviously giving a warning that your name could be blotted out of the book of life, but he's not going to do it. Uh, I think that's a backwards way of understanding what Jesus said. I don't, I don't think this is a passage that you can use to support the loss of one's salvation. That, that is an issue that you, there's no one verse you're going to be able to land on and say, see, this one verse tells me everything I need to know about that. It's the accumulation 
of the scriptural testimony that is going to determine uh, the answer to that question. And I think, and I even said this on Sunday, you know, when you, the preponderance of evidence to me is on the side of if you're saved, you're saved forever. Jesus, as he said here, he will not blot your name out of the book of life. And I think that's such a powerful truth um, because there is no question about the validity of these um, people's faith, right? Right here, because Jesus is assuring those that are the conquerors, mm -hmm. the overcomers. And we saw in our first study that in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, that the overcomer are those that are trusting in Jesus and they're continuing to trust in Jesus. And, you know, as I read that, Brian, I, I, I immediately thought of your last sermon here on Sunday mm -hmm. from Colossians. Yeah. You know, where Paul the Apostle says that we are holy and right, or holy and blameless and irreproachable in sight if we continue in the faith and how that is the, the evidence of that reality in a person's life. Yeah. And that passage, um, from what I understand from my friends that study the Greek language, it's emphatic. Jesus is saying, no, never. never. Yeah. You know, which is a powerful, powerful witness to that. Yeah, and I think what... Um I kind of was reading it. I was like, wow, all Jesus is saying is like, guys, wake up. Like what you're doing is like almost there. Like you could be there, but all you need to do is just wake up and strengthen the areas in your life that is weak. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to kind of nod to the past and look at the history and where you've come from. But um, use them as guideposts, not as a crutch to get you forward and just kind of lean on the glory days. And so, yeah, Jesus is just like, hey, you're almost there. Just hold on, like come back to like your first love, like we talked about last time. And um, that's, a, that's a really significant part to me is like, yes, as someone who's not from this church, like look back at your own traditions and use them to your strength. Mm -hmm. But also there's a great big glorious future coming ahead for you. And, and so you should work towards that. You know, what I thought too was really fascinating going back to what you said earlier, Tom, about, you know, here's Jesus introducing himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the spirit. And thinking about, remember back in James 2.26, um, James, defines, <coughs> James defines death as the body without the spirit. Mm -hmm. Isn't that significant? The yeah. body without the spirit, that's death. Yeah. And here's Jesus showing up to this dead church, and he says, I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's, it's like Jesus was saying, this is what you need. Mm. You need the life of the spirit, and then... To me, it's fascinating as well that he then says he has the seven stars in his right hand, whether they're the seven watchers or the seven overseers of the church. However we understand it, for me, the application is when revival happens, it has to start with the leadership of the church. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and, and, and again, Jesus, Jesus ultimately is the one that is going to make that happen. I mean, we we obviously have a cooperative, you know, a response to what he's doing. But, you know, every time I think of him holding uh, in his right hand the, the seven stars, I just think of, I, I that's comforting to me. It's like, okay, Lord, you got this. You know, we're we're in your hands. So now one one quick thing, just if we if we were to look and some of the reasons why um, you know, this idea that maybe there's there's like a progression of church history here. Some people look at this church of Sardis and they say, man, this just sounds exactly like the Protestant Reformation, right? 
that you have a name that you're alive, but but you're dead. Uh, the the Reformation, um, you know, a lot of great things happened, but there were a lot of things that were left undone. And so, you know, they didn't go far enough in a, in a lot of ways. So again, whether that's the case or not, there, there does seem to be a little bit of a parallel there. But the big question is, um, and this is from our notes, um, you know, the final question there is, what, what, is, the, what is the takeaway? Um, as, you, as you walk away from reading the letter to the Church of Sardis, what are you walking away with? Yeah, so... Um for me, the idea of like the fact that he says, uh, "Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments," is is like just this handful of people that are still walking righteous and still walking holy and still towing the Jesus line and the the rock solid. And for me, in a world where you're feeling stressed that like there's nothing good going to happen, there's no one who's got it right. The idea in this church who are in this deep spiritual coma that that there is like a handful of people that that can tow the party line like that is encouraging to me because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a ton of conversations about, um, like, this leadership and this, le- like, and people are very quick to point fingers and, and everyone's just, like, there's a handful of people that are really trying their best to steer congregations and to steer um, the way that Jesus is moving and to just focus that. And so, yeah, for me, um, like, a personal thing is to try and be one of those people that, that haven't sold the garments. You know, for me, um, um, there, there's a couple of things because when I, for me, it, as a pastor, but also on a personal level, but as a pastor, um, I read this thing. A guy named Tom Rainer wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And, um, and he was talking about the fatal causes that puts a once alive and vibrant church in the grave. And, and he, he put together this list and he said, um, treating the past as the hero refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community, moving the focus of the budget inward, allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission, letting the church become preference-driven out of selfishness and personal agendas, seeing the tenure of pastors decreasing, failing to have regular corporate prayer, having no clear purpose or vision, and obsessing over facilities. And then a guy named Stephen Manley in another book called When Does My Church Need Revival? He wrote, it's when the church is plagued with disagreements, the preaching is ineffective, few can remember when a person was last saved, God's supernatural power is never seen, God is not praised regularly, and no one is being called into God's work. And man, I read that and I thought, thank you, Lord, <laughs> that our church has life, you know? And yet, like what you were saying, Brian, isn't this really the sad state of so many churches that are, like their reputation, it's their denomination. Yeah. Like they've got their denomination over their door and they're celebrating the glory days. And like the works that Jesus says, you're doing it, but it's not complete. It's all that stuff they're doing, it's more out of tradition than out of vibrancy. And I think that there's a danger when we as a church, but now speaking personally, when we allow living the Christian life to just be out of tradition and routine, and there's no life. And I think the last thing I would just say is, I remember this thing that Pastor Chuck said years ago that always stuck with me where he said, God doesn't want to be in the factory inspecting the works. He wants to be in the garden and join the fruit. 
And man, it's just, I, I just see the danger in my own heart, you know? Yeah, and that, I mean, that is kind of church history in a nutshell, right? I mean, you have this glorious thing that God does and then, um, you know, years down the road, uh, people are, you know, still talking about that great thing that God did, but it's it's just continuing to diminish. And uh, man, to just keep it alive from generation to generation, that is something that you have to determine to do. You have to recognize that we, like anybody else, you know, John, we were in a pastor's meeting today and I mentioned that, you know, we, you know, we, and I'm speaking collectively as Calvary Chapel, I remember, because I've been around here for a long time, I remember the days when we would, uh, we, you know, we would look at the other denominations and we would look at them with a critical eye about how they had succumbed to tradition and how they had quenched the spirit and, you know, the, the wonderful history of how uh, Pastor Chuck, you know, he broke away from that and he wanted to see a fresh work of the spirit and the, de- the denomination was, was, you know, mechanical at that stage, the denomination that he was in and he wanted, you know, it was like a factory. Yeah. doing doing the fundraisers and doing all of those uh, kinds of things, you know, and he wanted to get back to the fruit. And of course, we would look back on those those poor groups and say, oh, those poor people, you know, and but with the idea that, well, we would never do that. But as time has gone, we've realized that we have the same propensity as everybody else. We could easily do that. We could easily just sit around and talk about the glory days of Calvary Chapel. And some people want to do that. Um, and, you know, I'm thankful for the glory days of the past. I want to see the glory days of, yeah, so of the future. So. We need the Jesus with the fullness of the Spirit. That's true. Yeah. Um, so uh, this probably feels like a sensible time to move from a church that really definitely isn't perfect to one that is a little more perfect. Um, so Philadelphia uh, is noted to be strong, noteworthy. Jesus sees them. Um, he marks them as a faithful church that built itself, that's built itself up in God's way. And um, he, he approaches them as the holy one, the true one, the one who has the keys of David, um, who opens the, the doors that no one will shut and shuts doors that no one will open. Um, so, so why is it key that we don't have this view of the, the seven spirits here, but rather we have a Jesus with the keys? Yeah, th- this is really, you know, the whole Philadelphian letter is pretty fascinating because it breaks from everything previously. All of the imagery of Jesus previously has gone back to the vision that was given in chapter one. Now it's a complete break from that. And I think, wow, that's fascinating. Not only is it a complete break, but it's going back to an obscure image of you know, these keys of David. And we'll talk about that in a second with the Eliakim in uh, Isaiah. But, um, man, you know, of course, everyone wants to believe that they are the church of Philadelphia. <laughs> and that's a good thing, uh, as long as we're not deceiving ourselves. Yeah. But we, everyone should aspire to be the church of Philadelphia, right? Yeah. And so here's, I think, here's a, a great place where we see Philadelphia, the, the, the city of Philadelphia, we know from the city of Philadelphia in the United States of America and Pennsylvania, uh, we know that that's the city of brotherly love. Well, that is, it took its name from this city right here. Remember, William Penn, who came to America from uh, Beaconsfield, uh, England, 
<laughs> I stayed in his house no way. years ago, yes. Um, and, you know, he, Pennsylvania was named after him, uh, but he was a Christian. And I think he was a Quaker, actually, but, you know, a Christian. And so they named Philadelphia after this, this book, uh, this letter. And the, the city, the ancient city, was um, built by a man named Attalus, a king, and it was built um, and named Philadelphia because of his deep love for his own brother. Wow. And I think the, um, the great thing about it is undoubtedly the name of the city is playing into the character of the church here. And so, I mean, because the church, and, and you know, again, this is one of those churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches that um, have only commendation. Hmm. There's no negative thing said about them. And so, you know, the church has the city of brotherly love. That's really what the church is to be. The church is to be the city of brotherly love. It's to be a place that you come into and it's marked by love for one another. So I, I think, and then yeah. when you look at the other aspects of the church and the, the things that Jesus says to them, what their priority was, what their emphasis was, you see that they had kept God's word. That was one of the things that Jesus really um, emphasized and commended them for. Mm. And, and of course, that's a key to continuing to grow and flourish in the love of God is to have the word of God central in our lives, right? Central in our, mm. in our experience of, of worship as well. But um, before we get too far into it, just, John, do you want to say anything about the, the whole picture of... Um, he who is holy and true, yeah. uh, the one who has the key of David. And what a, what a great thing. He who shuts or he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I love that. Yeah, so good. You know, the, the thing about this description of Jesus, and Brian's right, I mean, this is a, a break from the chapter one description of Christ. But to me, I think the, the big message is how their theology shaped the character of this church. You know, and you'd mentioned how this church had kept the word. And one of the ways that we know that a church is being faithful to the word of God is when they have right theology about God. And so everything here, it's vertical. It's, it's so for them, when they thought about God, God is holy. He is the holy one. And, and we know that holy means he's completely complete. He's completely sinless and he's completely unique. There's no one like him. There's nothing like him. He's the true one, which means he's authentic. He's real. He's genuine. And then that expression, um, that really has its roots back in the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> and Brian, as you recently finished teaching through the book, of Isaiah, you touched on this, but in Isaiah 22, verses 15 through 25, there's a, 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 a moment where God speaks of a man named Eliakim, and he becomes a shadow of the Messiah, where he receives the key into all the treasures of David, right? And now here Christ is saying that he has the key, um, that really he's the one who's the only one who can open the door into the messianic age, into the millennial kingdom. But it's also interesting how he talks about giving these guys an opportunity to be faithful witnesses in the world for him. 
And here's one thing about Philadelphia that's fascinating. Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east, and it was actually a strategic outpost city where the purpose of Philadelphia was to be the base of operations of spreading the Greek culture to the rest of Asia. And now here's Christ. He's, re, he's claiming this outpost that was intended to spread Greek culture to now spread the gospel culture into the rest of Asia, yeah. which is so amazing. That's awesome. And, and just the idea um, that he opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And, and again... I, I hate to keep going back to the <laughs> to the the idea of the progressive uh, historical thing here because I don't totally believe it, but you do see and and what people have looked at this as as that great uh, open door that came in you know the post Reformation period the 18th century revival period the 1700s basically when um, the gospel really began to go forth in a major way from from Europe, more specifically from England, and to go into the far parts of the world. So the great missionary age is the way people see it. And, um, and, and there could be something to that. But even more importantly, the, just the promise, and, and also as we're going to see in a second, um, you know, people have pointed out how this is, obviously somehow Philadelphia is, in some sense, it is speaking of a, of a last day's church because Jesus says something to them that is very much, its context is the last days. So um, that there would be God opening doors in these days. But it is interesting that he does say to them, he says, you have little strength. So, um, you know, Smyrna was the, the church that was poor, but you were rich. Uh, Philadelphia is you have little strength. And in both cases, though, you, you see just the principle of little strength is okay because little strength causes me to lean on his strength and I can do way more with his strength than I could with my own strength. Yeah. And so, um, but, but just that whole picture of I've set before you an open door. Yeah, and God, you know, just the fact that I think we're, you know, we have been living in that time and we're still living in that time when God is opening doors. And I always take, personally, I just take great comfort from these words that he opens doors that no one can yeah. shut. Yeah. No one can shut them. And he shuts doors that no one can open. And it's like, okay, you know, if I'm trying to pry a door open and it's just not coming, I can just walk away and say, okay, that is not the door the Lord wants me to go through, you know. And Paul the Apostle was an example of that, trying to get into Asia during his second missionary journey, right? Yeah. And, and the Spirit forbade him. Yeah. But man, once that door opened, um, I love that expression when Luke said they sailed a straight course to Samothrace. And I remember I thought... There's got to be something to that. So I asked a friend of mine who's a sailor, does the phrase straight course mean anything to you? And uh, they said, oh, absolutely. It means the wind's at your back. Wow. And uh, and so, man, the moment God opened the door, the wind was at their back. Yeah, that's so good. And um, I, I kind of like the idea of this open door being the idea of a revival. So people's hearts are open. Um, kind of the idea of a vineyard and um, the fruit's ready to be picked and the crop's ready. And... Um, so at the heart of every true revival um, are the priorities listed in Acts 2. So um, 
it says that they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles, teaching the, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And um, yeah, in this moment, Jesus could elicit a ton of things like to, like, to love and to, to be gracious with people. Um, but he didn't do this because he, he teaches that by, by being devoted to the Bible and by being devoted to each other, um, these things come naturally out of that. So the overflow of being rooted in scripture comes this brotherly love and this growth that um, the church in Philadelphia experienced. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I think that's a, a good key, Tom, that, um, you know, because we, we all know, and even Ephesus kind of indicates that, you know, you can have your theology all, you know, in order. You can have a, a real tight theology, but you can still... Uh, have left your first love. And if you've left your first love, your love for Jesus, then that's inevitably going to affect your love among your brothers. Mm -hmm. So here, like you said, Tom, in Philadelphia, they had it right Mm -hmm. because the word, uh, it it motivated them to love their brothers. I think that's clearly um, implied here. But Really quickly, I think I think earlier we touched on just the idea of uh, so verse nine. Indeed, I will make those who uh, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, uh, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So it was a church that was experiencing persecution, yeah. and in this particular case, as in one of the previous churches, um, there was a, a, a you know a Jewish inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, persecution that was being led against them. So Jesus, the synagogue of Satan, are those who uh, say they are Jews, yeah. but according to Jesus, they're not They're not Jews yeah. in, the, in the real sense. But this is where we really want to land and talk for a moment. Um, verse 10, uh, now we are, as, as we move on, you know, into chapters four and five and so forth, we'll, we'll really get into the issue of the rapture there. But Verse 10 is, I believe, a, a key rapture verse. Totally. And so what does he say? He says, because you have kept um, the word of my patience is the older translation, because you have kept my command to persevere. The idea is because you've kept my word, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth Behold, I am coming quickly. Mm. So, I mean, there there is no question about what Jesus is referring to. The hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth to test all of those who dwell uh, on the earth is a reference to the tribulation. Absolutely. Yeah, Jesus definitely um, singles out this hour from any other hour with that definite article, the... So he's talking about something specific. And like you said, Brian, then when he attached the word world, it's not isolated to just one locale. I mean, it is global. And it's also interesting because that expression to test those who dwell on the earth or literally the earth dwellers, when we get later into the book of Revelation and it's describing the people that are on the earth during the tribulation, that's the same phrase that's used to describe them. Yeah. The earth dwellers in the sense that this is their home. Mm -hmm. Where the Christian is a pilgrim and a sojourner on the earth, the earth dwellers know this is their home. Yeah. Yeah. Which answers actually one of the questions that just came in. Um, Will this church be a part of the rapture 
or will they just avoid persecution? Will they be left and just be able to like wander through the world? Um, but yeah, you guys answered it, and yeah. uh, the answer is they will not <laughs> be wandering through the world. Well, and you know, because some people have said, I mean, some for some people, the idea is that the church, you know, we have the different positions on on the timing of the rapture. So we here believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. We believe the rapture will occur before the tribulation. So Jesus is talking about the, the tribulation here. Uh, others believe that the rapture will occur after the tribulation. And some people believe that it will occur um, in the middle. And then there's a, another position that we'll talk about later too. But, um, but the interesting thing is what Jesus says here literally is I will keep you out from right. the hour. Mm -hmm. So because some people say, well, no, this is just a promise that he's going to protect you through that hour of trial. Kind of like Noah, you know, got into the ark and he was, you know, carried and preserved through the flood. But it, it is literally, I will keep you out from the hour of trial. Yeah. So that to me makes it clear. And so this too, this... Um, this shows us clearly that these letters were meant for not just the local historical yeah. churches in Asia, mm -hmm. but they obviously were meant for the bigger, you know, church historically because the hour of trial did not come yeah. in the first century. <laughs> so either Jesus just didn't know, you know, the timing of yeah. events, which we're not going to believe that, or, of course, he's looking at these churches, as we've already said, as, um, you know, mm -hmm. little, you know, pictures of, of what all of church history yeah. is going to look like. Uh, so, John, what's your hot take for this church? What's your thing that you grasp onto as we move on? Well, for me, I love verses 12 through 13, where Jesus is speaking to the conquerors. And one of the things he says is, to the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. It's interesting, the city of Philadelphia was prone to earthquakes. In fact, they had a, um, a couple of earthquakes that was so big, it literally devastated the entire city. And residents of Philadelphia, they chose to live on the outskirts of the city because they just never knew. And But here's one of the things that's interesting is, even though buildings collapsed, the one thing that remained standing were all the pillars. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the ruins of Philadelphia, buildings are rubble, but the pillars are still there. Mm -hmm. and, and I love how Jesus here is speaking to a group of people that knew that firsthand. And he's talking about, listen, with everything that's happening in the world, because even like what you're saying, I mean, persecution was going on. And not only persecution, there was also the threat of those natural disasters with the earthquakes. Mm. There was also <clears throat> all the, the paganism and debauchery that was going on. Philadelphia was known for the worship of Dionysus and the, the god of wine and uh, Bacchus and, and all the immorality, all that stuff going on. And yet Jesus is saying, you guys don't have to be shaken. I've got you. I've got you the same way that he's got us right now in a COVID-19 world with all the craziness that's going on. Jesus is saying, listen, even though everything falls apart, 
I am going to settle you and establish yeah. you like pillars that will not come down. Which is, isn't that cool compared to like earlier on where he's like, you are of little strength. Yeah. And then he's like, hey, you're going to be a pillar which is going to withstand the most powerful thing that you've ever even had to, like you know, like earthquakes, you know it firsthand. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to give you something that withstands even that. Yeah. I think that's amazing. You know, um, one other thing I'll touch on is uh, in verse 12, you know, so... Um, or verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. And then he says, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. And one of the questions um, on the, the sheet that were, we handed out was a question about what warning does Jesus give to the church of Philadelphia? And, you know, Cheryl wrote those that I'm like, what do you mean what warning? He doesn't warn them. About, you know, this is the church he commends completely. And and then I read that, I go, oh, that that is a bit of a warning there, you know. But it, but it's a good, you know, it's one of those things like, like when we were talking Sunday morning in Colossians, when Paul says, um, you know, Christ, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. Um, and, and it's the same idea here. It is uh, coming alongside to encourage um, all of us hold fast yeah. what you have yeah. that no one can take your crown. He commends them. You guys have got it. Mm-hmm. Hold on to it. And, and again, that's a good, that's a good reminder yeah. that we, you know, we can't be passive about this. You can't, you cannot go about your Christian life passively you have to move. You have to intentionally move forward. You have to, mm. you have to recognize that there are things that are always going to be trying to work against the work of God in your life, yeah. and you you've got to hold on to what you've mm-hmm. got. Mm-hmm. And if you if you're not diligent, and how many times in Scripture do we have the the call, you know, to diligence? If you're not diligent, you will get uh, swept up in things that could, in the end. Mm you know, cause you to lose your crown. So you have to, you do have to hold fast. So, so John, paint us a picture of Laodicea. Oh man, Laodicea. So here's a city that was a wealthy city. It was known for its textile industry. It was known, um, in fact, Lydia from the book of Acts. You remember she was from Laodicea and she was a seller of purple. And no, she was a Thyatira. Or Thyatira, but she lived in Laodicea. No. Okay, you got me all confused. You're right. Thyatira. Okay, okay. So Laodicea. Okay, I'm getting confused. Laodicea was the place known for the black wool. The black wool, The black wool, not the purple garments. Thank you for that, Pastor Brian. So Laodicea was known um, as a fashion center because of their black wool, but it was also famous because of their medical center. They were known for their ISAV. And people from all over would just come because they believed that this was a treatment for some of the most severe eye problems that existed at the time. And as a result of that, it was a wealthy city. And one thing that's interesting about Laodicea is that when Jesus talks about lukewarm, I mean, they literally knew what lukewarm was. Um, Where Laodicea was positioned, they had the hot springs of Hierapolis and the cold springs, the cold waters of Colossae, and they would flow and they would meet in Laodicea and the waters would always be lukewarm. Mm. In that, um, in that city. And so Jesus now coming to this city is, 
is speaking to a group of people in the church that, man, talk about wealth and self-sufficient. And for them, they just thought they had everything together. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, here we have Jesus, um, you know, presenting himself um, a little bit out of that that image that he had, you know, done previously where he refers to himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And and I love that, the amen. You know, I've, I've come to just love the word amen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jesus says, I am the amen. And, um, you know, and, and the meaning of the word, of course, is like, you know, it's, it, you know, in um, the, um, it, it means true. It mean you know, and so he says, I am the amen. I am the, um, the faithful and true witness. Yeah. And so Christ is that, um, he's, you know, he's that faithful one and he is that true one. And then the beginning of the creation of God, meaning like we've been studying in Colossians, that creation began with him. It, yeah. he, he's the, he's the, the, the author of creation. And um, so that's how he presents himself to them. But just that emphasis on truth yeah. and on that absolute, yeah. you know, I, I am the amen. But then, like you were saying, John, the thing about Laodicea that's so interesting is their perception of themselves mm. versus the reality that Jesus saw. Yeah. Yeah. So they're thinking, uh, we're doing great. I mean, we've got, <laughs> look at this amazing thing we've got going. We are rich. We are um, increased with goods. We don't have, we have need of nothing. Mm -hmm. That was their take on themselves. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was their take on their own spiritual mm -hmm. condition. Mm -hmm. and, and what a picture of what can happen in um, affluent yeah. cultures where you can, you know, where you can have a church that is, um, I mean, you know, and this does happen sometimes. A church becomes more of a social club. A yeah. church becomes mm. more of a place where the the affluent come to uh, hobnob with each other. You know, it's where people uh, of uh, high stature come and they have their, you know, their special places of recognition and all of that. And, and that's the kind of thing that is detestable to Jesus. Mm. I mean, Jesus says, you know, I, that makes me want to barf. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you go into a situation like that. But so their take on themselves was rich and, you know, increased with goods, uh, don't need anything. Jesus, I mean, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You can't that get sucks. a more dire... <laughs> Yeah. Diagnosis than that. And you know what's so sad about that is I was talking with a friend of mine who pastors a church out in the Bible Belt. And and he was saying that one of the big challenges for churches there, it's not for lack of funds. It's not for lack of big buildings. It's not for lack of having a lot of people in the church. The problem is, is that there are people that show up every Sunday and they're not born again. Yeah. And... And yet, if you ask anybody, are you a Christian? Everybody would say, of course we are. Yeah. Look at what we've got. We've got yeah. our programs going. We've got, and, and they're looking to stuff. And it reminded me of how St. Augustine would describe the church as the visible church and the invisible church. Mm, the visible church is all the bodies that we see in the pews, but 
not everybody sitting there mm-hmm. are necessarily born again mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But God sees the invisible church. He looks at a crowd and he yeah. sees the people that are really born yeah. again. And, um, and that's one of the, the scary things about wealth is that we can start mistaking mm-hmm. material stuff for true spirituality. Yeah. It's funny um, you mentioned Augustine because in my research, I found this, uh, this super famous quote. Everyone's heard it. Um, You've made us yourself and we are restless until we find rest in you. Mm-hmm. And uh, the church here found out that um, there's no solution to their um problems are going to be greater than the solution that Jesus offers. And um, so we're going to remain restless, unsatisfied, and lukewarm until we find rest in him. And um, yeah, just this idea of like being spat out by Christ, I'm like, you don't want that. There's no way you don't want that. Um, So um, what does Jesus offer as the assurance if um, this church overcame? What's the assurance well, that let, came let me let me just go back for a second and yeah. just touch on the, um, you know, um, you are neither hot nor cold, mm-hmm. but because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. I would that you were hot or cold. Yeah. So you know this 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 state of lukewarmness or this state of of um, indifference or apathy. This is the intolerable state for Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he would rather have you cold as ice than lukewarm because you know something that's cold can actually be you know warmed up you recognize I'm cold I got to get warm but when you're lukewarm you're kind of just like you know it's hey I'm okay that's the problem and um I mean obviously his desire is that we're hot Mm -hmm. and and again it's just that same battle that we see in all of these you know it's kind of that same reminder over and over again that we have got to We've got to maintain yeah. uh, the right spiritual temperature. Yeah. And the, the tendency, I mean, you know, just like if you take a, a hot tea or a hot cup of coffee, mm-hmm. when I start drinking my coffee in the morning, it's hot. By the time I'm done, because I drink it so slow, it's lukewarm. <laughs> and so, you know, that's just the natural tendency. Mm-hmm. The natural tendency is to go toward that state. Yeah. So this is where... You know, this is where sanctification, you see that it is a, it's a collaborative effort. It's God is working yeah. in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, but we have got to work out our salvation as well. So I've got to be conscious that I can easily slip into a lukewarm state. Mm. And I think Laodicea teaches us that the more comfortable you are, yeah. the easier that is. Yeah. So. And isn't it? Just uh, it's just interesting when you just see like when people are part of a Laodicean church, which is interesting because Laodicea, from my understanding, it means ruled by the people. Yeah, you know, and so you've got you've got this church that's living in that kind of comfort and ease. And man, the things that they get bothered by, man, it just. It, they get bothered by anything that will begin to infringe on my rights. Mm-hmm. They will get bothered by anything that will. It just would be an inconvenience in the slightest of ways because for them, Christianity should be free from suffering. I should be getting all my material needs met. And the moment you start infringing upon my rights, the moment you start shaking things up again, then I'm going to be mad at the world, yada, yada, yada. And and, And I just see like, what would the suffering church be thinking at this moment? Yeah. 
You know, like they would just be happy that, man, we can, we can worship together, even though it has to be in secret. We're going to worship. We're going to keep the mission going. And I think that's just so dangerous when we start shaping a Jesus that we want him to conform to our wants rather than Philadelphia that recognizes, no, you're holy, you're true. So everything was about, in Philadelphia, we want us to be shaped into your likeness. Laodicea wants a Jesus that will be shaped into their likeness. Yeah, yeah and, and as you go on here, um, you know, Tom, to bring it back around, here, here's a couple of amazing things. So Jesus, you know, he counsels them. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, you know, a true riches, white garments that you may be clothed, um, the shame of your nakedness. He told them they were naked. And then that you would anoint your eyes with eye salve. And um, again, we saw how that was part of the, they would have understood that from the situation in the city. But then he says this, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. And here's the amazing thing. Here's a church that essentially, because we see it in the next verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here's a church that pretty much has Jesus. He's outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hey, we're in here. We're the church, man. We're having a great time. Look at, look at how good we're doing. Jesus is outside knocking at the door. But... He still loves them as many as I love, Amazing. I rebuke and chase it. Yeah, so, you know, it's like we've talked many times over, and I know in my own life and, you know, growing as, as a pastor and just as a Christian, you realize, um, and we talked about this a little bit in the staff meeting this morning, you know, God's, God's in the long game here. Yeah. And, you know, even when, even at times when we put him outside and shut the door, uh, he's still knocking. <laughs> he's like, yeah. hey, let me back in. I love you. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with that, you know. So, I love the idea of um, there's this famous painting once I f forgot to reference it, but um, it's the, the the painter finished it and there was no door handle on the outside, and all these people were like marveling, like wow, what a what a great painting, and then they're like, hey, it's like there's no handle, like what's the deal? And um, he was saying like Jesus knocks from the outside, but it's the person on the inside. It's us that has to choose to go and grab the handle, yeah. twist it, open it, and then come to him. And so what's cool about this is it just feels like just Jesus is relentlessly knocking at this door and saying like you have to come to me. Yeah, yeah. And the promise. And you know how many times have we heard this in a an evangelistic invitation? You know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, and it really is an invitation to let Christ back in. But then he says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And, you know, we've, we've talked before and maybe, maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't, but this, you know, dining in the, especially in this ancient context was about the most intimate thing you could do with a person. So what Jesus is inviting is he's inviting intimacy, you know, open the door and I will come in. And, you know, we, we kind of keep coming back around to this theme, especially on Sunday mornings lately, you know, but just that, just the reality of fellowship with God, that is why we're saved. We're saved for fellowship with God. We're saved to, to serve God, yes, but that's not the first thing. The first thing is fellowship with God. And that's what Jesus is saying here, um, I will open the door or, you know, you open the door and I will come in and dine 
with them. And then finally, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Uh, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, I mean, what an amazing promise to sit down with me in my throne. (laughs) That is like, wow, okay, Lord. And (laughs) later in Revelation, you know, we see that, we see the throne of uh, God and the Lamb are one throne. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to grant those who overcome to sit on that throne with amazing. me. Wow, totally amazing. So, okay, we did it. The seven letters to the seven churches. Now, do we get any, any we questions? We got, we got a few. Okay. Um, so how do we know that we are the church of Philadelphia um, and will be carried out of the tribulation? Um, so that there are seven churches, which are we most like, and how do we know that? Well, I think this is where it comes down to a personal thing. Mm. You know, this is where there's a personal application. I mean, we want to, we would like to think as a congregation, and I think we should aspire, I mean, we, we want to aspire to be the Church of Philadelphia. Uh, 3 verse 7 how does one discern and decipher between a door that the Lord has not opened versus a door that Jesus wants us to keep knocking on John well I think um, in in the context here with opportunities um, I, I, I like going back to that whole situation with Paul that we mentioned earlier in Acts 16 um, there was a way that God's Spirit was making it clear to Paul that he wasn't supposed to be moving east um, because God had other plans because he wanted to send them to Europe, the West, you know. And um, I think that that there are different ways that God can use. Number one, I think that whenever we're moving in a direction that we should always keep an open ear and open dialogue with people that we regard as being mature believers, people that love us enough, they'll speak the truth. I know for me, whenever I'm moving in a direction, um, I always seek the counsel of my mentors. I seek the counsel of pastors. Um, Number two, I think that we should, in prayer, be sensitive to how the Lord ministers to our hearts. The Bible says in Colossians, let the peace of God rule your heart or to umpire your heart. And sometimes when you find yourself feeling really uneasy and you just can't get past that and it's just this lingering uneasiness, it's better to wait than jump the gun and run ahead only to find out that you did something you weren't supposed to do. And number three, I think that God uses circumstances. I think that there's... Uh, a, a, a way that as you're moving in one direction, God could either, like we said, the wind is at your back and he's opening doors. It doesn't mean there's not going to be resistance, but you just sense God's hand in the movement of the direction that you're going. Or it just seems like, man, every time you're trying to move forward, it's just another door that gets slammed circumstantially that the Lord is saying, you know, I, I think I need you to wait in Troas, just like Paul did. And it was only when he paused that the Lord was able to then give him the clear direction, I want you to go to Macedonia. Cool. Um, do you think that the prosperity doctrine fits with Laodicea? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I think it, that, would be, that would be one example. I mean, I don't think you have to necessarily 
hold to the prosperity doctrine to fit the the mold of Laodicea, um, but just the whole idea of, like I said earlier, affluence is definitely an issue there. So some people have uh, prosperity as a doctrine. <laughs> you know, I mean, they yeah. te- they teach it like this is if you follow Jesus, you're gonna you're gonna prosper. Uh, financially, mm-hmm. uh, other people don't necessarily hold that as a doctrine, but they they're covetous. They love money, and they're, you know they're they're about that. So I don't think it's exclusively that, but I think it certainly could be included. Mm-hmm. Uh, could the Laodicean church be the church in the tribulation? Well, um, to me, there is no church in the mm-hmm. tribulation. Mm-hmm. There are the church, the whole. You know, the thing with with, um, Philadelphia, the church, as we would understand the church, those who are born of the Spirit are removed. Uh, God's going to keep us, as we saw, out of that hour Mm -hmm. of trial. So anyone who doesn't participate in that, I would say at that point, was maybe part of the visible church, but not truly part of the invisible church. In other words, you know, some people actually do teach uh, what you might call a partial rapture, Mm -hmm. where some of the church is going to go, and oftentimes they use uh, Matthew 25, they use the story of the the parable of the virgins, you know, five were wise, five were foolish, uh, five had oil, five didn't have oil, talking about Christians, some have the spirit, some don't have the spirit, the ones with the spirit are going to go, the ones without the spirit are going to get left behind. Um, I I don't think you can um, conclude that from that parable, nor do I see anywhere where you could you could really see like the body of Christ somehow being, um, you know, ripped apart. One part of the body goes, but the rest of the body remains on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, if John is writing to the church in those days, how can we apply it so easily to the future rapture of the church in our day? Um, was Jesus talking to them directly about what was going to happen to them in their day specifically? Well, on, on, you know, on the Philadelphia church, I think that we have to see that some of those things were absolutely clearly for them mm-hmm. and some of them were beyond them. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, you know, some people would argue that, uh, well, I mean, that's kind of the preterist argument, right? Unless unless these things were relevant and, and fulfilled to the people they were originally sent to, then they would say um, that we, they, they just don't believe that, that that could happen. But I think you have Old Testament examples where it does happen. I mean, Daniel is told uh, to seal up the book because he's not going to understand it. It's for the future generation. So some of it was for him, but much of it was for the future. And I think this, especially, again, there's no way of getting around this uh, day of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth. That did not happen ever. It's referring to a specific time, and there's no parallel to it in the first century that you could say, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about. Because like you said, John, it's global. It's universal. It's not a local thing. It's a worldwide thing. Yeah, and you got to remember, too, that that promise was designed to encourage and give these believers in the first century hope that whatever they were suffering at the moment, Jesus is still going to come back and he's going to win. And um, and so going back to what we we're talking about of just that eclectic interpretation, 
<coughs> did this mean something for the first century believers? Absolutely. It was designed, just like for every generation, that no matter what is going on in the world, we have all looked up for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Has previous generations seen the second coming of Christ? No. But I'm thinking of like in Hebrews 11, when God had given promises to the patriarchs, and then it says, these have died in faith, not receiving the promises. And yet... They were going to enter into the, the promises when all the believers receive it together. And so here, here's a group of people that were experiencing real persecution from a large Jewish population that was there in uh, Philadelphia. And rather than quitting, God is saying, hey, listen, don't give up hope. I'm coming back. I'm going to save the church don't give up hope. In fact, even before he said that, he says, listen, I'm going to vindicate you. All your enemies that are persecuting you right now, one day I am going to have all of your enemies bow before you and I'm going to declare that I love you. You know, And so I think that every generation is supposed to live with the hope of the return of Christ. But one generation will actually get to see it. You know, one last thing that um, just when you're saying that, John, um, you know, the church, the interesting thing about Philadelphia, I was reading that that the Christian church in that city went on for hundreds of years. So there was a Christian witness in Philadelphia until uh, the 1400s. And so that's a long, <laughs> you know, that's a long stretch of time. Uh, when you think of, you know, the, like you're saying, there were their enemies that were looking like they were going to overcome them, but they overcame and they, you know, endured. All right. Well, um, I hope this was a blessing. Um, well, this was fun for me. Yeah, we're, ha we're having a great time. We hope you are too. And I uh, hope you guys outside are still uh, warm enough. We'll come out and greet you in a moment. <laughs> and all of you at home, we know you're nice and cozy. So um, God bless. And we'll be back next week. We're going to jump into the next section. So remember, we've got the things that are chapter one. We already looked at those or the, the things that you've seen, chapter one. The things that are, we just looked at the things that are, the things of the church. So when we get to chapter four next time, we're going to be moving historically out into the future. So from chapter four on, everything is future. And we will look at chapters four and five next week. We'll get some questions posted up earlier in the week for you so you can go over those on your own. I want to encourage you to, to just think about the, the questions and you know, work through them throughout the week just to be encouraged. So, uh, Tom, you want to just close us in prayer? Yeah, God, um, thank you so much for your word, um, for these letters, God, and the, the ways that we can personally apply them to our lives today. I just pray that um, if there's areas that you're knocking on our hearts, God, in our, in our lives, that we're able to, f to find that, God, and to open those doors. Um, thank you for opportunities, God, to learn and to grow. And um, yeah, just as we prepare for next week, God, um, all the congregation online and the guys here and, and us on this discussion, I just pray that you really speak to us. Um, show us the things you really want us to talk about, God. Show us the areas that we can grow. And um, God, be with us all tonight as we, we drive home, as we, we head back to our places, God, and, and keep us safe, keep the congregation well. And um, God, we ask all of this in your holy name. Amen. 
Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you rate us in your podcast app, subscribe and share with a friend. If you're looking for more resources, head over to cccm.com where you'll find a full archive of previous messages. Again, thanks so much for joining us. We hope to see you next time in the Conversation Through Revelation podcast.